0: Classic video game systems like the Nintendo Entertainment System and the Game Boy have onboard sound generators that actually create all of the music that you're hearing when you play a game on one of those systems in real time. They're actually musical instruments unto themselves to the point that modern bands will take them out on stage, plug them in, and use them as part of their show. Kind of takes the idea of playing Nintendo to a whole new level, doesn't it? to Strong Songs, a podcast about music. I'm your host, Kirk Hamilton, and as always, I'm glad that you've joined me to talk about music performed by Nintendos, music performed by Game Boys, and sometimes music performed by human beings. We've got some Nintendo-rific music to talk about on this episode, and I am excited to get into it. So find a comfortable place to sit, turn up the volume, plug in your controllers, and enjoy the show. I never had a Nintendo growing up, my parents would not allow me to own a set-top console, though of course I did still manage to play a lot of video games throughout the 1980s and 1990s, mostly by visiting my friends' houses and then eventually by getting a few different ways of playing games myself. From those early days of surreptitiously installing Doom onto my dad's laptop so that I could play it very early in the morning and then uninstall it before he woke up so he would never know I had done it, to my 10-year run as a professional video game critic and writer, spending most of that time at the video game website Kotaku, video games have been a pretty big part of my life, a bigger part of my life than I would have probably predicted back in the late 1980s when I first played Super Mario Brothers. I've always found a great similarity between video games and music, and specifically the act of playing video games and the act of playing music. I am all about cross-media analysis, and I think that my understanding of music has always made my understanding of video games maybe a little bit different than most people's, and that always made it fun to write about them, but there is this similarity just in the process of playing and practicing them and the part of my brain that they use. This might just be a me thing, but I really do, I find this similarity. I've been practicing a lot of music lately and like I talked about in the last episode, there's this difference between practicing and playing or when you're just kind of noodling around on the instrument. And when I'm really practicing, I have to engage my brain and slowly make progress. The older I get, the more I appreciate really difficult video games. And when I'm playing a really difficult video game, I'll often find that I'm using the same part of my brain to the point where if I've spent an hour or two really trying to beat some really tough boss fight, I'll then find that I don't have the mental energy to practice, which is actually a really important thing to keep in mind, that I have a limited bandwidth for using my brain in that way, and I have to choose kind of carefully where I apply it. So today, am I going to master this diminished scale pattern, or am I going to finally beat the Valkyrie Queen? I'll eventually do both, it's just a matter of which one I want to do today. So, welcome to the show. I'm so glad that you're here, and I am excited to talk about video games. This will be the first time I've ever talked about video games on this podcast, at least outside of a QA episode. Though I do want to say upfront if you like video games and you listen to strong songs but aren't that aware of other things that I do, I do host a video game podcast called Triple Click. It's a lot of fun. I make it with two of my good friends and longtime colleagues, Maddie Myers and Jason Schreier. We talk about video games every week, and it's pretty cool. It also gave me the opportunity to write yet another podcast theme song, which you're here hearing right now that was a fun one to write and to record i don't launch new podcasts entirely to write new music for them but i don't not do that either also in the near future on that show i'm going to be talking more about video game music which should be fun Alright, before we get into it, a couple of things. First of all, you can, as always, reach me at listeners at strongsongspodcast.com You can find me on Twitter at Kirk K-I-R-K Hamilton and on Instagram at Kirk underscore Hamilton and you can find Strong Songs on Twitter at Strong Songs. Strong Songs is a totally listener-supported show. Thank you so much to all of my patrons who make it possible for me to keep making this show. I don't have any sponsors. Don't make money on ads or anything like that. I am entirely supported by my wonderful listeners. So if you like this show, if you've listened to it, you've got things out of it and learned from it consider becoming a patron of strong songs because that is the thing that makes it possible for me to do this uh, you can head over to patreon.com slash to know more and just as a sort of a side note it is like a really tough time for a lot of people in the world right now. A lot of people in the performing arts, a lot of venues, a lot of restaurants, people who are really, really hit hard by this pandemic and who haven't been able to make money or have their businesses be open in the way that they ordinarily would be. And I just, I want to remind everyone to just really think about the things you value in your life, the things you liked in the before times, and go try to support them in some way. Like if a cafe is open, and they're just open for a couple hours a day, serving coffee to one person at a time, go buy some coffee from them. If your favorite pizza place is making pizza, go buy some pizza from them. If an artist that you like is releasing a special album on Bandcamp or something, go buy it directly from them and don't just stream it on Spotify. Think about small ways that you can help because if everybody helps in small ways, it'll actually make a difference. A lot of people need a lot of help and it's not always going to be enough for each of us to individually just help out in little ways, but sometimes it can be and it is absolutely worth going out of your way to help support the people who make the things that. That you like. As cliched as it sounds, we are in many ways in this together, and I think it's so important that we each take the opportunity when we can to help one another get through to the other side. Okay, it's time to get into this episode's strong song, and it is a very strong one. Like so many songs that we've talked about, it is a hugely influential piece of music from many decades in the past. See, I always knew that I would talk about video game music on Strong Songs at some point, and it seemed like, if I'm gonna talk about video game music, I should probably start by talking about Nintendo, and if I'm gonna talk about Nintendo, I might as well go back to the very beginning. That's right, grab your controllers and stretch out your thumbs, because it's time to talk about the theme music from Super Mario Bros. There is so much good video game music in the world, and so much good Nintendo music in the world, even if you try to narrow things down, that it can be hard to keep things focused. I was thinking about what I might talk about on this episode, and man, I mean, there are literally hundreds of pieces of music that I could break down, but I wanted to keep things focused, and in order to do that, I decided to kind of go back to the beginning. Now when I say the beginning, I don't mean the very beginning, I'm not talking about going back and doing a musical analysis of Pong, but I do mean the beginning as it pertains to me and a lot of other people, in that the Nintendo Entertainment System, which became popular in the United States in the late 80s, was such a huge watershed moment for so many of us. It was the moment when video games became kind of the same thing that they are now, and it was very important not only for the hardware and the fact that you could plug it into your TV and play games on it, but for the games themselves, which in many ways ways still hold up today to an unusual extent, demonstrating Nintendo's very early mastery of the medium in a way that does make Nintendo feel somewhat like the Disney of video games. Nintendo characters like Mario, Luigi, Peach, Zelda, and Link are all still characters people talk about now, and a large part of that is because of the music that we associate with those characters. A lot of that music was composed by a single man, Mr. Koji Kondo, in the 1980s, and it was created in spite of, and in some ways because of, the technical limitations imposed by the hardware itself. It's very pure, very clean, and very listenable music, and it's just as good today as it was 30 years ago. But no matter how many times you've heard it, there's more to this music than you may think, and I'm very excited to start to pick it apart for you today. So on this episode, we are going to be talking about the music from the 1985 Nintendo game Super Mario Bros., specifically the theme music from World 1-1, which is the first level of the first area of the very first Super Mario Bros. game, which means it is the first music that ever accompanied someone while they played Super Mario Bros. on a Nintendo. Super Mario Bros. was designed for the Nintendo Entertainment System, which in Japan was known as the Famicom, and it was designed and directed by the legendary Nintendo designer Shigeru Miyamoto. Miyamoto would also co-direct The Legend of Zelda, which was an equally revolutionary game for the Nintendo Entertainment System, and a game with amazing music that I would love to talk about at some point in the future. These days, hundreds of people may spend years and years working on a video game, but back in the 1980s, it was a much smaller affair. And the same guy composed music for both The Legend of Zelda and Super Mario Brothers. His name, as I've already said, was Koji Kondo, and he wrote the melodic themes that would go on to be reprised and echoed through countless sequels and spin-offs over the decades. He was also the sound designer on Super Mario Brothers, which is something we're going to talk about on this episode. He's responsible not just for that music, but for the sound of the game which i would argue is as integral a part of its musical identity as the music that plays in the background as you're jumping around and stomping goombas so that's what we're going to be talking about the incredible work of koji kondo and the many many ways that he wrung an amazing amount of music out of a very limited piece of hardware So I'm mainly going to be focusing on the music itself, the harmony, the melodies, how cleverly it is put together, but the music wouldn't exist were it not for the restrictions placed upon Kondo as he was composing it, so I want to start by just explaining sort of what was the framework he was working in and what were those limitations and why did they exist. So I mentioned this in the intro, but a lot of those early game systems were musical instruments unto themselves. They had sound generating units. They were basically little synthesizers built onto a chip in the console that the software, usually a game, would then direct the chip to play as the game was playing in real time. It's essentially a simple synthesizer that's being controlled by a kind of a piano roll that the people who made the game programmed for it and is then playing in your living room through your TV. So first of all, what is a synthesizer? I've defined this a few times on the show, but just to do a really quick definition, a synthesizer is a truly electronic instrument in that the instrument itself creates electronic tones that the player can then manipulate using knobs and faders and other sort of input devices on the front of the instrument to tweak an initial tone and make it sound sometimes very very different. Now when I say it's an electronic instrument I don't mean that the synthesizer is a computer instrument. It's not actually computerized. It's just electronic in that it uses electricity to generate a signal that you then modify using the knobs and keys and levers on the front of the synthesizer. Synthesizers rose in popularity in the 1970s. I talked quite a bit about one of my favorite synthesizers the Oberheim OBX. On the episode that I did about Russia's Tom Sawyer, that's an amazing sounding synthesizer that can do a ton of different sounds, but it is very much its own distinct instrument, just like other famous synthesizers like the Mini Moog, the Yamaha DX7, or the ARP 2600 are their own distinct instruments, and this is why people sometimes start collecting synths, because each one is different. That means that a Nintendo Entertainment System, which is the console that both Super Mario Brothers and The Legend of Zelda were released on, is itself a synthesizer. It has a synthesizer built in as part of its inner workings. In a modern video game, you know, you'll just get a game disc or more likely a download. You'll download 70 gigabytes of information and a kind of significant chunk of that is audio and it's actually just recorded audio. It's the soundtrack recorded into stems that then the game picks and chooses from depending on where you are in the game and what's happening. Obviously, that allows for some pretty amazing music in video games because now modern games can just have a whole huge orchestra and a choir, you know, playing along just like a movie. There's no restriction anymore because there's so much more disk space and games can be so much bigger that it's possible to dedicate a significant percentage of the game's size to just raw audio files. That makes all kinds of beautiful things possible with modern games, I mean now games have soundtracks that can just sound better than anything I've ever heard, I mean if you grew up playing Nintendo games. it would have blown your mind to know that 20 years in the future a video game could sound like this. This is the opening track from composer Austin Wintory's unbelievable Grammy award winning soundtrack for the 2012 game Journey, and it's so beautiful. those are real human beings playing real instruments with all the expressiveness of actual human beings. I think that actually one of Wintery's great strengths as a game composer is he knows how to really capture a soloist's energy and get that kind of human feeling that a soloist will have. That's cellist Tina Guo playing on the Journey soundtrack, and she's just a beautiful player. And she brings so much just individually to Austin's music. And she can only do that because they record it in a recording studio and then put audio files on the game disc or, you know, in the download package that you put onto your playstation to play the game and that's because due to modern hardware it was possible for them to have a lot of space for the game's files That didn't always used to be the case, and back in the 8-bit days in the 1980s when the Nintendo Entertainment System, which I'll just call the NES from here on out, when the NES first came out, there was not a lot of space for games on each game cartridge. The people making the games had to be very careful about how they used the very limited amount of space that they had, and it was totally out of the question that they would be including a whole bunch of recorded audio on a game cartridge. The solution then was that the NES itself would generate the music and all you had to do was provide essentially sheet music, or you can think of it like a player piano role for the system to then spit out the music according to what you're telling it to do in the game's code. Now, I want to say that I'm not an expert in chip music. There are a lot of people who are serious chip musicians. There are some pretty incredible people that use Game Boys and Nintendos on stage, you know, kind of hacking into them and then using their sound modules like synthesizers in live performance. It can be super cool. That's not my area of expertise, but I do kind of want to just give you some technical sense of what's going on just so you can kind of appreciate why the music turned out the way that it did. So the Nintendo Entertainment System basically had five different channels that it could access at any given time, and that's what. Kondo was working with when he composed this music. There's three single note synthesizers, which gives you a pretty limited number of notes you can be playing at once. There's also a noise channel that a lot of people use to create drum sounds, but it's also used for, you know, sound effects. And there was also a digital sampler that could play pre-recorded samples, but like I said, disk space was at a huge premium and digital samples were relatively big, so it was much more efficient to just code the music and let the Nintendo take it from there. So right off the bat, it's kind of a high-wire act for musical composition, because you've only got three voices available to you along with a rhythm track and you've got to make it sound as rich and dense and interesting as possible to work along with the game. Plus, you need to use those same channels to create the sound effects for the game and that needs to fit in with the music seamlessly. It is a real testament to Koji Kondo's brilliance that he made music that not only did all of that, it worked technically, it fit on the game cartridge, but it's also really, really musically cool. It's so good that it's still an earworm today. It's still music that people listen to today. It is still probably at least when I'm talking about a Super Mario Bros. theme, maybe the most iconic piece of video game music ever composed. If you play this music for just about anyone, they'll probably tell you, oh yeah, Mario. So, let's get into it. We're going to be talking about Koji Kondo's World 1-1 music from the very first world in Super Mario Bros. Let's start from the top. a lot of video game music of the era, the Super Mario Bros. theme has a lot of short discrete sections that repeat over and over again. This song has four discrete sections that I'm going to kind of label as section A, section B, section C, and section D, and it just kind of puts them back to back and then just repeats over and over again. It's just enough variety that it doesn't sound super repetitive, but it's not so much that it would take up a whole bunch of disk space. So let me just break down those sections for you now. Here is section A, which is the section that everybody knows. Here's section B, which comes immediately after section A. Here's section C, which comes right after section B and changes up the groove for the first time. So from there, the song goes back to the A section, but then comes the song's secret weapon, which is the D section, the kind of extra spice that keeps it from sounding too repetitive. The D section comes after a reprise of the A section, and it sounds like this. those are the main sections of the World 1-1 music from Super Mario Bros. There are a couple of other little musical pieces to it that we'll talk about in a minute, but one other piece of musical information that actually is in there at the end of the C section is the very introduction, which is an iconic introduction, and not a bad place to start our analysis. So this music is actually a really good way to practice ear training. A lot of listeners have written in to ask me about like how to get better at listening to things and hearing, you know, picking out individual melodies and counter melodies. And I'm actually planning on doing a bonus episode about that at some point down the road. But in the meantime, if you want to work on picking out, you know, middle parts and really kind of training your ear to tease out individual melodies and counter melodies, chip tunes are not a bad way to go because, as I mentioned, there's only ever going to be three notes sounding at the same time. And in this intro, there are only three notes notes playing, they're just three really well chosen notes that make for a very distinct sound. So this tune is in the key of C and you probably can hear the melody immediately. The melody really kind of jumps out at you and the melody is a really cool melody but what makes this music magic is actually the harmony, the two other notes that are going on underneath the melody. That's true throughout the entire tune but it's true of that intro so let's just look at that very opening intro phrase, listen to it one time and then we'll start actually at the top with the melody and build it out going down from from there so you can easily hear that top melody part that sounds like this Very simple harmonically, like a lot of the melodies in this song are very simple harmonically. This is just a C major triad, kind of starts on an E, then goes up the triad to G, and then drops down the octave to the G down the octave. Now like I said, the magic is actually in the second two voices, which imply much more of the harmony. We're actually kind of on a 2 here. It's a 2 dominant 7th, which is a D7 chord, that then leads to a 5 dominant 7th, which is a G7 chord, which sets up the downbeat, which is that C major. So it's a two five one with a dominant 2 chord, because the 2 doesn't always have to be minor. And uh, that's kind of sounds like this if I were to just play it on piano. Of course, that's more notes than Koji Kondo had to work with, so let's listen to what he does, and then I will tease out what he's doing in those second and third voices. Alright, so if the top voice is playing this... The second voice is playing an F-sharp for that entire line, which sounds like this... When you put the top voice and the second voice together, they sound like this. It's more jangly and discordant than just that C major triad was on its own, because that F sharp is just kind of sitting there, it provides a tritone when you go down to the C, and the F sharp is the major third of that D dominant seventh chord, the two dominant seventh, and because the major third is the note that Kondo chooses for the second voice, it really emphasizes that he is playing a two dominant seventh chord, which a two chord is usually minor, so when you play a dominant chord with a major third, it's just a brighter sound for a two to have, and that gives this whole song like a brighter energy right from the very beginning so we're going to listen back to that intro two times the first time will be on its own and the second time i'm going to play along with just that second voice so you can start to kind of hear it it's actually pretty easy to hear once you get your ear around it because it's a slightly different synth tone than the lead part and it does stick out it's down the octave on that f sharp you just have to be hearing it staying put on the f sharp even though your ear will naturally want to follow the lead line which is moving okay here it is Okay, and this time, I'm going to play along with that second line on the F-sharp to help you hear it. So hopefully now your ear is getting a little bit calibrated to hearing those two voices because those two voices are, are happening concurrently with one another throughout this entire tune, and that second voice is really what makes this piece of music and a lot of Kondo's NES music so cool. It's that second line that implies all of these neat little twisty harmonies underneath the melody. So we have a third voice to get to, and that is actually just a D. It's a lower note down on the D, just a bass note for that two chord that then goes up to a G, kind of like this. When you put all three parts together just on piano, you get this with just those three voices the harmony comes through loud and clear and you can hear that two dominant seventh to the five which is really they just play a g in octaves with a b in the second voice which is good for kind of really emphasizing that they're setting up the downbeat like it makes the setup more emphatic but something that you lose a little bit when you play it on piano is the fact that there are three different voices playing almost like a little ensemble it's like a synth trio that's playing together and each of those notes even when they're doubling the g they're playing it with their own distinct tones which gives the recording its own distinct flavor. More specifically, the three synthesizer tones available on an NES are two square waves and one triangle wave. So the top two sounds are actually very similar, and that's why those top two sounds tend to move in concert with one another. The bottom sound, which is usually used for the bass, is a triangle wave, which has a slightly smoother sound. So like I said, a synthesizer uses electricity to create a tone that you then change in a bunch of different ways, and the most fundamental way that you can change a tone is to change the shape of the sound wave. So with a synthesizer, one of the first things that you'll do is choose the shape of the sound wave that the synthesizer is producing and some of those shapes include square, triangle, and sine wave. Each one of those is reflected if you look at the signal like the sound wave that the synthesizer is generating it'll look like the shape that it is named for. So the NES has two square waves and one triangle wave. A square wave just on my little synth plugin here sounds kind of like this and a triangle wave on the same synthesizer sounds like this. The thing that creates the wave is called an oscillator. You can have a synth with multiple oscillators. You can then fade and mix between them and have multiple oscillators going on a single sound. You can also add a sine wave or a saw wave or a lot of other ways of manipulating the signal. But the basic thing to understand is because the synthesizer is creating a different shaped wave, it gets a different sound, which makes it work kind of like a trio, like an ensemble of three different instruments. So if your brighter, buzzier square waves are kind of like maybe soprano saxophones... Your slightly smoother triangle wave is maybe a little bit more like a bass clarinet. Put them together and it's a little ensemble. Now for the purposes of this episode, I want to get even clearer distinction between those three parts, so we're going to get a little bit more creative with it, and we're going to separate those square waves into different instruments. I'm going to use a sampled upright bass for the low notes, a marimba for the middle notes, and the piano will be on top. Let's see what that sounds like. That's more like it. Now, of course, there is one thing missing, and that is the drum sound, which, like I said, is playing on that noise channel on the NES. We'll talk a little bit more about the drums once we get into the A section, because what the drums do on the A section is pretty interesting, but you can definitely hear it down there. It's a very limited sound palette that Kondo is working with, kind of just a thump, a pop, and a sizzle. Okay, so let's keep going from that intro into the A section, and I want you to try to hear everything that there is to hear. There are three voices going. In particular, see if you can pick out what the second voice is doing, and also listen for the drums on that noise channel, and listen for how they're implementing Thump and Pop and Sizzle. One last thing to keep your ear out for, which we're going to talk about after we listen, and that is the feel, the groove that the drums are playing, because that's actually a very interesting thing about this piece of music. So listen for that as well. Don't just try to hear the thump and the pop and the sizzle, but pay attention to the feel, the way that the drums are feeling eighth notes, because that's pretty cool. All right, ears on, let's listen. Alright, so there's so much cool stuff going on in this A section. There is a reason that this is the most iconic melody in video game history, and a big part of that comes down to the groove and the feel. I think that the feel and the kind of uh, tension that exists between the drums and the rest of the instruments, the rest of the synth lines, is actually kind of crucial to what makes this song have its particular bounce. So, rhythmically the main melody is kind of a Latin influence thing, like it just has elements of Afro-Cuban music going on, a lot of the syncopation and the phrasing sort of Echoes the kind of thing you might hear from, you know, Tito Puente or Arturo Sandoval. In a kind of general way, it's just sort of aping the vibe and the general rhythm of that kind of music. Like, here's Tito Puente's band on El Cayuco. Now to the drums on the Super Mario music, what they're doing that sets them apart from the rest of the groove is that the drums are actually playing a swing beat here. They're swinging the groove while the rest of the instruments, those synth leads, are playing straight. Now, swing is a really crucial concept to understand when it comes to just understanding feel and modern music and why one song might feel different from another song, even if they're at the same tempo and playing the same kinds of notes. It really all comes down to feel, and feel is really all about swing. Now, I did a pretty lengthy description of swing back on the Rhythm and Harmony bonus episode that I recorded earlier this year. I do really recommend listening to that. I recommend everybody listen to that because it's sort of a good primer on everything that I talk about on this show. But of course, you don't have to have listened to it to understand the analysis I'm going to do today. So just to kind of break down the difference for you, I'm going to break out the beatbox and do a straight groove and then a swing groove, both kind of similar to what's happening on the World 1-1 music. The first one's going to be straight and the second one is going to be swung. So here is the straight groove. And here is a swing version of the same groove. it all comes down to how you're feeling your eighth notes straight eighth notes feel like pup while swing eighth notes feel like pup Bup, 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 bup. And that's basically about as detailed as I need to get about it. Swing just means you're displacing the second beat. It gives a little bit more of a swing to it. And when you walk, you kind of swing. You know, you can kind of feel the way it has a kind of strolling groove. There are all kinds of degrees of swing. Something can be really swinging. It can be almost totally straight with just a touch of swing. In this case, Koji Kondo's drum groove is actually pretty swinging. It's pretty laid back and swinging while the other lines are actually playing straight. So listen back and pay attention for just that Listen to how the drums are playing kind of with this like bouncy swing while the rest of the lines are actually just sort of playing a more Latin straight eighth groove. kind of this feeling of pulling between the drums and the melody because the drums are playing a slightly different groove and as a result they kind of rub up against each other in a way that actually really works i think it causes this sort of tension that creates a brightness and a sort of forward momentum to the overall track i want to demonstrate by recreating the a section and then adding two different grooves a straight groove and then a swing groove so you can kind of hear the difference between the two and we can kind of imagine what it would have been like if koji kondo had decided to put a straight groove underneath it instead of the swing groove that he went with. Okay, so for starters, here's my recreation of the three-part melody of the A section of this piece. And as I did before, to help you hear the three parts, I'm going to put that bass on the bottom, the marimba in the middle voice, and the piano on top. Alright, here we go. Okay, now here's the same parts with a straight eighth drum groove underneath it. So that sounds one kind of way, here's what it sounds like with a swing groove under it, which is me approximating what Koji Kondo actually used on the final track. It's so much more distinct, right? Like suddenly it sounds like the Mario music where before it just sounded kind of like some slightly less distinct jam. So to really drive home the difference between those two things, I'm gonna do a longer example. I'm gonna start by playing that straight eighth beatbox and then I'm gonna shift to a swing so you can really hear the difference. All right, here we go. Now, straight eighth groove. Now let's go to swing. Feel it. Okay, so listen back to the original recording and just pay attention for that. Try to feel that tension between the way that the melody is feeling the groove and the way that the drums are feeling that swing groove. It's so like the heart of the song just lives in the tension between those two time feels. All right, here we go. so cool it's a thing that's easy to miss but it's not a thing that's easy not to hear I think everybody hears it and it's one of the things that makes this song distinct it just doesn't quite sound like anything else and I think a big part of it is that drum groove another thing I like about this drum groove is that it actually contains a thump a pop and a sizzle the three elements of the strong songs thump pop sizzle groove breakdown that's all it's got and it never goes beyond that it's just a thump a pop and a sizzle and the pop and the sizzle are so similar sounding because they're just on that noise channel that it's almost hard to tell them apart but you can hear when it's supposed to be a snare drum and when it's supposed to be a hi-hat and of course you can hear the thump it almost just sounds like a little boulder breaking sound effect down there to be a kick drum so just to break it down the kick drum is the thump and that sounds like this The snare drum, such as it is, is the pop, and it almost just sounds like a burst of static. It sounds like this. And the hi-hat, as far as I can tell, is the same sound as the snare drum, it's just done at a different volume, so it sounds like a sizzle, and it kind of rhythmically sits in a place where the hi-hat normally would. It sounds like this. Play them alone, it sounds like a malfunctioning FM radio, put them together, and it sounds like a groove. So that groove of course is running in contrast to the melody. The melody here is pretty cool because there are three voices and they're moving perfectly in parallel with one another to create this kind of unified sound. So I already played the melody with all three voices in on the bass, the marimba and the piano, but I'm gonna split them up now so you can hear them individually. Let's start with the bass. This is the bottom part and it sounds like this. Then there's the middle part, which I am playing back on a marimba, and this is my closest approximation of it. This is what I'm hearing. I might have a note wrong, but I'm pretty sure this is what it is. This is the middle voice. And then there's the top part, which is probably the part that you whistle or hum if you get this song stuck in your head. And I am playing that on the piano. So all three voices are moving essentially in parallel and they're following the same contour of the same line which gives this unified sound. Take just those first three notes of the melody. If we play them on piano, the top part sounds like this. It's really just a descending C major triad. It goes C, G, E, like that. So where that top part starts on C, the second part starts on E, down lower, so it goes E-C-G-3-1-5, like that. So the lead voice is playing a C major triad descending starting on C, the second voice is also playing a C major triad descending starting on E, which means, of course, that the third voice is going to play a C major triad descending starting on G. It goes G, then E, then C. If you place them back to back, you actually just get one continuous descending C major arpeggio starting on a C and then ending on a C two octaves lower. It sounds like this. Of course they aren't placed back to back, they're stacked on top of one another in groups of three, which means that you're basically playing a C major triad in different inversions down the piano. Now I've explained what a chord inversion is before, but I'm going to explain it again just in case you haven't listened to every episode of this show, even though you should, but the way that I described inversions on the episode on God Only Knows was in terms of a metaphor that I call the inversion hamburger. So if a basic C major chord goes C E G like that, That is a root position chord. It's got the root, the one on the bottom, and then the three, and then the five. So an inversion takes those three notes and puts them in a different order. Instead of putting the C on the bottom, you put the E on the bottom, and it goes E, then G, then C. That's a first inversion chord. So if you wanted to put the fifth on the bottom, that G note, that would be a second inversion chord. Same three notes, you just have the G on the bottom now, and it goes G, then C, then E. So that's a C major chord in the second inversion. It's the same three notes. You've just raised two of them up the octave and they're in a kind of a different order. So the inversion hamburger is basically like if the one, the C, is the bottom bun, the E, the third, is the burger, and the G is the top bun, then a root position chord goes bottom bun, burger, top bun. A first inversion chord goes burger top bun bottom bun and the second inversion chord goes top bun bottom bun burger and i know what you're thinking you're thinking why would somebody make a hamburger that way and let me just say don't knock it until you've tried it anyways rearranging a hamburger like the three layers of a hamburger is kind of a good way to think about chord inversions just to sort of understand what they are and this melody the melody to the world 1-1 theme is moving in descending differently inverted c major triads it basically goes from a first inversion chord which has the E on the bottom to a root position chord which has a C on the bottom to a second inversion chord which has the G on the bottom. However, There is one more thing that Koji Kondo does to those chord inversions to make it sound the way that it sounds in the game, and that's that he takes those chord voicings and he converts them into what's called a drop-two chord voicing. Now, this is a little bit deeper into theory than I usually get on this show, but drop-two chords are actually pretty cool. Some of you probably know what they are, and it's actually the drop-two voicings that make the bass notes what they are in the Super Mario Brothers theme and makes this song sound the way that it sounds. So a drop-two chord just means you take a chord and then whatever the second note down from the top is, you drop that down the octave. So, drop two. You drop the second note down the octave. Now, this is usually used with seventh chords, which have four notes in them. This is kind of a jazz term. A lot of piano players do a lot of drop two voicings. Guitar players, Joe Pass and Wes Montgomery did drop two voicings a lot, and it's typically more in four-note chords, like seventh chords, and it lets you get a richer sound. However... I'm seeing these triads that Koji Kondo put into the Super Mario Brothers theme. They're basically drop two. I mean, they're a root position triad, and then he takes the middle note and drops it down the octave, which may have another name for it, but I'm going to think of it as a drop two voicing because it is still taking the second voice and dropping it down the octave. To return to the inversion hamburger, picture that root position hamburger, bottom bun, burger, top bun, just a normal hamburger. If you were making a drop two hamburger, you would take the patty out. You would take the burger out and put it underneath the table. So that would just be a little bit lower than the two buns. So let me demonstrate that. Here is the root position, basic hamburger, C major triad. And now we're gonna convert that into a drop two chord, which means we take the E, the middle note, the hamburger, and put it under the table, drop it down the octave. So now that E is down low and it'll sound like this. It's nice, right? It gives you a much bigger sound for a basic triad just by taking that middle note and dropping it down the octave, it opens things up. And I know you kind of get some dirt on your hamburger when you put it under the table, but it makes for a more interesting flavor. So drop two chords can actually be a really great way of livening up piano parts or guitar parts. Um, It can be a way of taking a kind of basic sounding chord and making it sound just a little bigger and a little bit richer. So instead of going from straight up first inversion to root position to second inversion, which would sound like this. Koji Kondo makes each of those chords a drop two chord, which takes the middle note and drops it down the octave for the bass to play, which leaves it sounding like this. So listen back to the entire A section and just keep an ear out for those three voices and listen for how they're moving essentially in parallel with one another in different versions of inverted chords and drop two voicings to keep a kind of parallel motion that gives them a unified sound. One more thing that makes this opening melodic idea so sticky, and I think that has made it have such a long-lasting legacy, and that's just how rhythmically hip it is. This is a really, really rhythmically happening melody. So for starters, it's just very syncopated, which just means there's a lot of upbeats and downbeats, and if it were played on its own without that steady beat going, it would actually be a little tricky to tell where the downbeat is, but... Like that's already pretty happening, but then they throw that triplet in there, and that really sets it off. So a triplet is basically when you cram three notes into the space that would normally take two of those notes. So if you're playing quarter notes on the downbeats, one, two, three, four, bam, 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 those are just normal quarter notes. Two quarter notes would fit into two beats like this. Bom bom, like that. That's two. However, if you did a quarter note triplet, you would cram three notes into the same space that normally it would take two notes. So instead of bom, bum, you get bom bom bom, bom bom, bom bom bom. Now, triplets are central to a ton of rhythmic things. They're like really, really important part of just about any groove. Triplets are super big and complicated topic. Maybe I could do a whole episode about triplets someday. I'm not gonna do that now, but just know that that next part That bum 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 is a triplet. That triplet is kind of the final discombobulating element of this melody, and there are a number of factors in this melody that are kind of working together to keep you off balance and discombobulated, so that you're kind of bouncing around and moving forward. There's the fact that the drum groove is swinging while the melody is straight, which creates this kind of tension and friction between the melody and the groove. There's the fact that the melody itself is just pretty syncopated, so it has a lot of those upbeats. and then there's that triplet that just kind of again just trips over itself and and adds yet another unpredictable element to this song. Koji Kondo was fond of triplets and he used them in a number of really cool ways especially in the Super Mario Brothers music but I really like this one just because it's right at the very beginning and it throws you off balance even more than the song already had. Okay, so let's get back to the harmony and the way that those three voices are working together. So the most important thing that's happening here is that all three voices are moving very tightly together. It's like you can picture three dancers kind of mirroring one another as they move across the stage. They're really mirroring like they're in different places in the chord inversions, but it's very tight. Now that tightness exists to set up the contrast of the next section, the B section, where things open up because the bass suddenly breaks apart and starts playing its own part. So let's take it from the A section and this time I'll let it play into the B section and pay attention for that, how the bass breaks apart and that opens the whole thing up in a really significant way all right here we go It feels like a completely different part of the song, right? The groove has just totally changed, but really only one thing has changed, and that's that the bass has broken apart and started playing an independent bass line. Sounds like this. So, what's happening in this section is we're kind of bouncing between C major and F major, the 1 and the 4, then it goes to the 5 chord then back to one, then to four, and then it does that neat little turnaround, which is an A flat, to a B flat to a C, which is a really common turnaround, especially in rock music. Actually, it's a little bit more of a pop rock thing. That's flat six to flat seven to one, and that A flat chord. The flat six is going to be really important in a second. So this is where Koji Kondo introduces it. So the bass line is really outlining this harmony, and that is kind of broken apart while the drum groove stays totally the same. And the top two voices are still moving really tightly in concert with one another. They're playing these neat chromatic figures that are very beboppy and sound pretty cool together. The top line, which you can hear very easily, sounds like this. Now as usual the second voice is a little bit harder to hear, but it's moving really tightly in concert with that top line and it sounds pretty cool on its own too. Sounds like this. Let's put them together and we'll put that second voice down on the marimba so you can more easily tell it apart. Here's what they sound like together. very tasty so let's add the bass line to that the bass is doing its own thing and outlining the harmony just playing kind of one five one through the chord progression here's what they sound like together So listen back to the original and pay attention to all of that. Listen to how the drums actually stay the same in that B section, but how the groove changes so dramatically just because the bass starts playing a separate bass line. And then also see if you can hear both the first and second voices in those tightly moving chromatic figures above the bass line. All right, ears on, let's listen. you're probably already getting a sense for how immaculate and tidy this whole composition is and I do think that is a direct result of the constraints that Koji Kondo was working under because he had so little to work with he had to make every part count and I think he did a fantastic job of that. The first example is just what a big difference it makes when that single voice, the bass, peels off and starts playing its own thing. It feels like a completely new section of the song. So it would only make sense that the next section of the song would introduce a new change. So the bass keeps doing its own thing, so we've already got the bass separate from the top two voices, and now the drums change up the groove and begin playing a new kind of feel. Give it a listen and keep your ears open for all of that. Alright, here comes the new section. Get ready for it. So what's really happening there is the drums are actually changing the groove so that the drums are a little bit more in line with the bass. If we've gone from the drums in one place and all three voices in the other place at the very beginning, to the bass peeling off, leaving the two voices together, the bass, and then the drums in kind of three separate places... Now the drums have actually kind of migrated over to where the bass is, and the drums and the bass are kind of playing together, while the lead two voices play a melody together as well. So the drums have shifted from this kind of groove to this much more kind of groove, which matches up with the bass. So here's what the bass is playing during this section. It's almost a legit timbao, which is a pretty cool kind of a bass line that plays over the bar line. I actually wanna superimpose a timbao over that in a second to show you what that would sound like, because I always hear it that way, even though it isn't totally doing what a timbao normally does, at least in my understanding of a timbao. But it's pretty close and it's basically just this boom goom 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 goom. So if you keep that groove going, the drums are just playing along with that. The bass is boom 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 and the drums are get 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 get. They're just playing together so the harmony here is pretty cool too we're actually going between an a flat major chord and a c major chord it's that flat six chord that was introduced just a couple seconds before this section but it's been drawn out here and kind of more deeply explored or at least as deeply as you can explore something in a song this constrained and this tight and then after going back and forth between the A flat and the C major, it actually ends on the intro cadence, which sets up the downbeat going back to the A melody. Like most things about this piece of music, it is very tidy and very pleasing once you look at how all the pieces fit together. So, as the bass and the drums groove together and the bass lays down that A flat to C kind of alternating chord progression, the top two voices are moving yet again in very tight tandem with one another, playing through this very nice little melody. The top part sounds like this. Now, as usual, the second voice is the more interesting one just because it has kind of a little bit more voice leading. It uh, is laying out the nice shift from that A flat down to the C. This is what the second part sounds like played back on marimba. So now let's listen to those top two parts just on their own together and listen to how they work together to outline the harmony. It's very nice. And it's time to reprise the melody from the top of the tune. So let's put all of those parts together, my recreation along with my beatboxed uh, drum part, and let's see how they sound. See if you can hear all four parts as they work together and sometimes in contrast to one another. just as an aside, I mentioned a tumbao, and a tumbao is a really cool thing that a bass will do in Afro-Cuban music. And again, I'm not an expert, especially not in bass and drumming in Afro-Cuban music, but I do really like the sound of a tumbao and I wanted to introduce the concept to you all, so I think I can do that just by adding a proper tumbao bass line to this section, which actually I think makes it sound really, really cool. So basically a tumbao is when a bass begins playing a line, it typically goes between one and five and then one up the octave, kind of like this. And rhythmically, it's displaced in a way that I believe matches up with the conga or maybe with the clave. I think it can vary. There's probably a lot of different variations of this. But when I hear a timbao, it usually sounds like this. So if our tempo is one, two, three, four, the timbao sounds like this. So, it never or at least rarely lands solidly on one on the downbeat. Instead, it hits on four and then ties over the bar line. Boom, <laughs> And when a bass line like that kicks in, it creates this wonderful kind of floating rhythm. It really cuts the groove loose in a way that I absolutely love. And this section of the Mario Brothers music actually is almost a tumbao. So, let's listen back to what it actually is, and then I'm going to turn it into a tumbao, and uh, you'll hear the difference. It's pretty cool. So, here's what it sounds like in my recreation one to one to what is actually happening in the game. Alright, so let's cut the bass loose of that downbeat and do a timbao. Here we go. Two, three, four... yeah i love that that grooves super hard um not that the original doesn't groove hard i just always hear a tumbao there like when i sing it in my head i always start singing that displaced bass line i actually sing it over the b melody too which would sound pretty cool too it would sound like this two, three, four. Timbaos are cool, and a couple sections in this song lend themselves to a timbao. Music is a lot of fun. Okay, let's keep moving. So from there it goes back to the main melody, which is enough to make you think that maybe we've looped back to the beginning, but we haven't. There's one more section. This final melody, which I call Melody D, is the one that brings it all home because it comes after that reprise of the A melody, and it's the thing that adds a touch of spice just when you thought you were going back to the beginning, which makes it a really crucial part of the piece. It also brings together a bunch of the ideas that have turned up elsewhere in the song. It's got those top two voices still moving in tight harmony. The bass has yet again peeled off to do a new bass line, and the drums have actually started doing a new drum groove as well. So harmonically, this is in the same neighborhood as the rest of the song. It just goes from a C to an F to a G to a C. The bass line is nice and jaunty. It sounds like this. Those top two lines are moving in nice tight harmony with one another with some neat chromatics that sound really good. That melody is also yet again using triplets in a cool way, that triplet triplet then sixteenth notes. Kind of brings out the contrast there and uh, livens up the groove significantly. And the drums have shifted yet again to a really kind of just steady backbeat that sounds like this. Put them all together and you have a triumphant, triplet-heavy melody that, when combined with the tidy cadence at the end of this phrase, really brings us home. Here's my recreation, give it a listen. I love that line at the end just because it so tidily walks from the 5, from that G chord, up to the C and resolves on a C in this kind of perfectly cute way. However, if you've played a lot of Mario and you hear that specific part of this music, you may have a different association with it. You may associate it with failure. Yes, whenever Mario wanders into a stray Goomba or piranha plant and dies, you actually hear a version of that same cadence with this sort of added boo 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 kind of tom fill descending, but it is the same music repurposed to work as a you died cue. I love that little triplet that that kind of interrupts the music. It's just this little triplet, but it's so iconic and it actually gets at the last thing that I want to talk about, which is that Super Mario Brothers isn't just this passive thing that you sit and observe while that music plays, it's a video game, which means that you play it and Koji Kondo's sound design is an integral part of the overall composition that is Super Mario Brothers. The World 1-1 music isn't just the composition that I've spent the last episode analyzing, it is also the many creative sounds and musical flourishes that you, the player, trigger as you play the game. Everything from the low glissando of a normal jump, to the deeper glissando of the super jump, to the perfect fourth in the key of C of a coin collection, to the oddly beautiful six-note figure that plays when you collect a one-up. The music of Super Mario Bros. goes beyond the track that plays in the background and becomes a larger interactive piece, being played in real time by the synthesizers inside the console and arranged in real time by you, the player. So you can't just sit back and listen to the music to World 1-1 and fully understand how it works, you have to listen to someone playing the game. as you listen to this recording, treat it like you would treat a piece of music. Listen to how the different sounds fit in musically with the background music, and even how the lead line will actually get out of the way of the sound effect to make room for it to come through. It sounds chaotic and messy, yes, but it is being driven by a person playing the game in addition to the person who wrote it, and that, I think, is the magic of video game music. Great video game music puts the player and the composer in collaboration, creating a digital musical world of infinite possibilities. And that'll do it for my analysis of Koji Kondo's World 1-1 music from Super Mario Brothers. Thanks for listening, and thanks so much to everyone who's been spreading the word. I've recently seen a few nice write-ups and blurbs in the media, which is really cool. That's the main way people find out about this show is when you all tell your friends about it. The show has been growing steadily, and that means that you are all telling people, which I really appreciate. Thanks, too, to my Patreon backers. Everybody who supports this show on Patreon makes it possible for me to keep making it. I can't say enough how much I appreciate your support, especially in this uncertain time so thank you all so much you can find the names of whole and half note backers in the show notes and extra thanks to them this episode's outro soloist is the great steve pardo who in addition to being an excellent saxophone player has also composed his share of video game music so stick around for steve and i'll be back in two weeks with more strong songs